So, before I begin my lecture, I, I, this, is, this is the first thing I want to do. I want to commend all of you students. I've seen this in my own classes, that, that you students have brought tremendous spirit and energy to your studies, and that's despite the irksome circumstances you're dealing with. I've, I've been really edified by this, and I know that the other tutors are edified as well. So I just wanted to thank you for, for that tremendous spirit you've shown. Uh, tonight, I'm going to address the question of whether the discipline of logic is a necessary part of a liberal education. Now, from the very beginning of its existence, this college has devoted three-quarters of the freshman philosophy tutorial to the study of logic. So it's clear that our founders answered this question in the affirmative. And in this, they followed the older tradition of university education, which included logic among the seven liberal arts. But for more than the past century, the vast majority of colleges and universities have answered that same question in the negative. Almost none of them require the study of logic. And some don't even offer an elective course on it. Now their neglect of this discipline tells us loud and clear that they think a man might be well-educated without having made the least formal study of logic. Now, so in this lecture, I will, unsurprisingly, defend our college's practice of requiring every student to study logic, to study it extensively and in detail. And in this defense, I will raise three objections against the inclusion of logic in the curriculum before I make the direct argument for its necessity. And then I'll use what we've learned in that argument to answer those objections. However, before I begin that defense, I'd like to remind you of what we're talking about when we use this phrase, liberal education. And I'd like to clarify what we mean when we use the word logic to name an academic discipline. Now the word liberal comes from the Latin for free. And so it makes sense to say that a liberal education is the education appropriate to the free man. Now we tend to think about this freedom in a superficial way. We think that a man is free when he's not restricted by rules, not hampered by responsibilities. We think that the free man has lots of time and is able to do whatever he pleases. But Aristotle, living in a society in which slavery was just as common as freedom, thought that just the opposite was the case. He saw that the slaves of his time often had more free time than the free men and more opportunities to do as they pleased. Free men were burdened with responsibilities and left with relatively little free time. 
So if free time and a lack of restrictions are not the marks of the free man, what is it that really distinguishes him from the slave? I think what distinguishes him is that the free man lives for his own sake and not for the sake of another. And the free man directs himself in his important actions. In contrast, the slave lives not for his own sake, but for the service of another. And in the important actions of his life, he does not direct himself, but he's ruled by another man. A liberal education, then, is the education that is appropriate to a man who's free in this sense of the term. Now, since learning is the point of any education, we need to ask what is appropriate, we need to ask what is appropriate for a free man to learn in his liberal education. Now, since the free man directs his own actions, he needs to learn those sciences which teach a man how to live well. And so ethics and politics are necessary parts of a liberal education. But since he lives for his own sake, he also wants to study those sciences which are worth knowing for their own sake. Sciences such as mathematics, the philosophy of nature, metaphysics and sacred theology. In such sciences, he learns the greatest truths about the greatest things, such as the nature of the universe, the immortality of the soul, and the existence of God. A liberal education, precisely because it is liberal, leaves aside disciplines such as engineering and agriculture. Useful as they are, they are not worth knowing for their own sake but only for the bridges they build or the crops they grow. And so theology, philosophy, both speculative and moral, and mathematics form the chief parts of a liberal education. You might have noticed that I have not yet mentioned logic. And the reason is that logic while I'm going to argue it's a necessary part of a liberal education, is not one of its chief parts. Logic plays a subordinate role in liberal education as one of the seven liberal arts which are handmaids of the higher disciplines, especially theology and philosophy. But before we get into considering the role of, of logic in liberal education, I want to clarify what we mean when we use that word logic to name an academic discipline. <clears throat> now outside the confines of this college and a few other like-minded institutions, people rarely have any clear idea about what the academic discipline of logic teaches. But, and this is crucial, Everyone has some idea of what it means to be logical. We call a man logical because what he says is logical, and we call what he says logical because it's clear and precise, because one part of what he says doesn't conflict with another part, because what he seems 
what he says later seems naturally to follow upon what he said before. In sum, a man is logical because what he says is precise, consistent, and orderly. Now, if that's what it means to be logical, then the academic discipline of logic probably aims at teaching us to be precise, consistent, and orderly in our thinking and in our speech. And in teaching us these things, it is in fact teaching us the order in which reason must proceed for the acquisition of knowledge. In other words, logic teaches us how to proceed from what we already know to a knowledge of what is as yet unknown. As St. Thomas puts it, logic teaches the mode of proceeding in all of the sciences. Now, what I've said so far about the academic discipline of logic has been very abstract. So let's look at it more concretely. What are the kinds of things that we learn about when we study logic? Now, the sophomores, juniors, and seniors probably remember that they spent a lot of time freshman year talking about genus, species, and difference, definition and category, affirmation and denial, and syllogisms with their premises and conclusions. What do all these things have in common? Well, we could say about all of them that they're logical instruments, they're tools formed by the mind for the sake of learning. The student of logic studies these tools, learns how they ought to be formed and used, and learns the difference between a well-formed logical tool and one that's poorly formed. And in doing so, he learns the way in which he needs to go forward in learning any science. Now, the syllogism is the most obvious example of this kind of tool. Uh, let's suppose that I've already figured out that the three angles of a triangle added together are equal to the sum of one of the exterior angles plus its adjacent angle. And then let's suppose that I already know that the sum of the exterior angle and the adjacent angle is equal to two right angles. What a syllogism is, is it's a logical tool that allows me to put those two statements together as premises and to reach a further conclusion. The sum of the exterior angle and the adjacent angle is two right angles, but the interior angles of a triangle are equal to that sum. Therefore, it necessarily follows that the interior angles of a triangle are equal to two right angles. Now, the syllogism here is the tool which I use to put an order between the two statements whose truth I already know, but in such a way that through them, I learn some statement that I didn't yet know. And this is just one example of the kind of tool that we learn to form and use when we study logic. So let me try to sum up what I've said so far. At Thomas Aquinas College, we are exclusively concerned with providing for our students a Catholic liberal education. <clears throat> 
That means that the chief objects of our studies are not the useful arts, but rather are those kinds of knowledge which are worth studying just for the sake of knowing them. Logic is an academic discipline which studies the tools that the mind forms and uses so that it can proceed from the known to the unknown in all of the disciplines. This still leaves our main question unanswered. Is the formal study of logic a necessary part of a liberal education? Now, at this point, you might think that our answer is obvious. But the practice of most universities tell us that it isn't obvious to them. So I intend to begin my defense of the formal study of logic by bringing forward three objections, three arguments against that position, three reasons someone might think, someone might have for thinking that logic should not be part of a liberal education. And our objector might first argue in the following way. Liberal education is exclusively concerned with the study of those disciplines that are worth knowing for their own sake. But as our patron St. Thomas Aquinas himself says, logic is not a discipline worth knowing for its own sake. We only study it insofar as it's useful for knowing other things. Therefore, logic should not be a part of a liberal education. Of course, the defender of logic might point out that logic could belong in a liberal education at least insofar as it's useful for learning the sciences, which are parts of a liberal education. But our objector has an answer to that. He contends that the human mind cannot help knowing all the logic that it really needs. He points out that we have extensive experience in our lives of ordinary men, non-logicians, making affirmations and denials, drawing conclusions from premises, and even giving definitions of the terms they use. And we ourselves frequently do the same. Our objector grants that we need to use logic, but he contends that there's no more need to go to school to study logic than there is to go to school to learn how to walk. Just as we naturally learn how to walk without any formal study, so we learn to be logic, logical naturally without any formal study. Our, our objector then concludes that logic doesn't need to be a formal part of any curriculum. And if the defender of logic insists that logic needs to be taught, our objector insists that not only does logic not need to be taught, but in fact, logic cannot be taught, nor can it be learned through teaching. Now, he grants that the use of logic is necessary for learning any science, but he points out that if we needed to be taught logic, then we would need to use logic to learn logic. But we cannot use logic 
unless we already know logic. Therefore, we would already have to know the very thing that we're trying to learn. And that's just absurd. And so our objector concludes that since it's impossible to teach logic, it must be the case that logic is not part of a liberal education. So let me sum up then the re three reasons not to include the formal study of logic in a liberal education. First, logic is not worth knowing for its own sake. Second, logic is learned naturally. Third, it's impossible to learn logic through teaching. Now, I am going to answer these objections, but I want to leave them aside for the moment in order to make the direct case that the discipline of logic must be included in a curriculum of liberal education. Now, I could make such a case at a very <coughs> universal and abstract level. But I thought that we would learn more about the necessity of logic by seeing that necessity in a particular example. <coughs> Moreover, the third objection reminded me of a crucial section of a text that all of us, even the freshmen, have read, Plato's dialogue Mino. What I plan to do next then, instead of making the abstract case for the necessity of logic, is to look at the Mino and see what Socrates' conversation with Mino tells us about the need for logic. And it turns out that it tells us quite a bit. Now, in case you don't remember, Mino begins the dialogue abruptly by challenging Socrates with this question. Can you tell me, Socrates, whether virtue can be taught? Now, Socrates takes Mino by surprise with his frank admission that he cannot tell Mino whether virtue can be taught. But he surprises him even more with the reason he gives for this inability. Socrates says, I am so far from knowing whether virtue can be taught that I do not even have any knowledge of what virtue is. And Socrates further explains the relevance of this reason. If I do not know what something is, how could I know what properties it possesses? Now, I want you to notice that this more general statement, when we look at it carefully, is not a statement about virtue or about ethics. It's a statement of a logical principle. It tells us how the mind proceeds from the known to the unknown. It states that knowledge of what something is is necessarily prior to knowledge of what properties it has. Mino asks whether virtue is teachable, but Socrates responds by teaching Mino a bit of logic. Now, as we all remember, Mino is astounded that Socrates does not know what virtue is. And Mino claims to possess that knowledge himself. And encouraged by Socrates, 
he gives his own account of virtue. And as we all know, Socrates finds fault with Mino's account of what virtue is, and not just Mino's first account, but all of his subsequent accounts. But what I want us to notice is the kind of fault he finds with those accounts. Socrates doesn't exactly object to the truth of the statements that Mino makes about virtue. In fact, as you go along in the dialogue, many of those statements were suggested by Socrates himself, and Mino merely agrees to them. What Socrates objects to in Mino's accounts is, they are not, is that they are not the right kind of answer. The question, what is virtue, demands a well-formed definition for its answer. But Mino's definitions are all badly formed. So in this dialogue, Socrates is showing us that Mino's problem is not so much an ignorance of virtue as it is an ignorance of logic. Now, let's look at three of Mino's answers to the question, what is virtue, in a little more detail. Mino first tries to tell Socrates what virtue, when, when Mino first tries to sell, tell Socrates what virtue is, he makes a short speech in which he describes the kinds of actions appropriate to the different kinds of people and concludes it by saying, there is a virtue for every action and every age. Now Socrates doesn't object to the truth of Mino's descriptions. In fact, or rather for instance, he doesn't deny that the virtuous free man would know how to administer the state. What he objects to is the form of Mino's answer. He objects that the answer is not one account that applies to every virtue for every condition of life. But a definition needs to be one account that applies to every instance. And in the subsequent passages, Socrates takes great pains to teach, to teach Mino this. And I'm afraid only with uh, partial success. So later in the dialogue, Mino defines virtue as to find joy in beautiful things and to have power. Again, Socrates does not disagree with that statement that virtuous men find joy in beautiful things. But what he denies is that such a statement constitutes a part of a definition of virtue. He points out that all men desire beautiful such things. And so this property is not specific enough to virtue to be included in its definition. Implicitly, Socrates is teaching Mino the logical principle that the definition must belong only to the thing defined. So Mino amends his definition to include only the power of attaining beautiful things. But then at prompting from Socrates, he finds that he needs to add the word justly to this account. And so Socrates again objects. And again on logical grounds. He points out that justice is a virtue. And so Mino is implicitly including virtue in its own definition. Such a definition is viciously circular and thus violates the requirements of logic. 
So his third account of, of, of what virtue is also fails. Now, what we can gather from our consideration of Mina, no, sorry, <laughs> this is a question actually. So what can we gather from our consideration of Mino's three failed definitions? It doesn't seem that the problem is that Mino knows nothing about ethics and virtue. Socrates doesn't exactly criticize him on that score. The problem is always that Mino has not given the right kind of answer to the question. His answers are not proper definitions. They don't have the proper logical form. In some, we can, we can conclude that Mino cannot answer the question, what is virtue? Not because he does not understand ethics, but mainly because he does not understand logic. But it doesn't seem that Mino himself realizes this. In fact, his initial confidence shaken by Socrates' refutations, he comes to admit that at least for now, he can't say what virtue is. He accuses Socrates of being a torpedo fish that has paralyzed him. When Socrates challenges him to begin the inquiry again, Mino turns around and argues that the quest is hopeless. If we don't already know what virtue is, then we won't recognize it even if we come across it. Socrates immediately rejects this as a debater's argument, as sophistry, and offers an answer to it, his theory that learning is recollection, that our souls knew all things before they entered our bodies, that the process of entering the body caused the soul to forget its knowledge, and that the process of learning is that of recalling forgotten knowledge. Now, I'm not proposing that we accept Socrates' solution to Mino's debater's argument with all that it implies, such as that the soul exists before the body. But I do think we can glean something from Socrates' account. Socrates is telling us at least this much that the quest for knowledge is not hopeless because even though Mino might not have a perfect knowledge of what he seeks, he has some sort of imperfect, confused knowledge of it. And on the basis of that imperfect knowledge, he will be able to direct himself toward that more perfect knowledge. Or rather, he would be able to direct himself to it if he knew how to form, how to formulate the right kind of answer to his question. And what all this implies again is that Mino needs to study logic. Now, I don't mean to imply here that if only Mino, if only Mino were to study logic, he would immediately be able to form the perfect definition of virtue other causes of knowledge come into play as well. Logic is not sufficient to guarantee learning by itself. But the way in which Mino fails shows us that the ability to direct our minds from the known to the unknown is not 
a product of nature, but has to be acquired by study. That is, we cannot know what something is perfectly unless we can define it. And we cannot define it unless we, we know what a definition is. And we're not born knowing that, nor do we come to know it automatically. Rather, we have to learn how to formulate a definition, and that only happens through the study of the academic discipline which teaches this, the science of logic. Mino's failure then gives us an insight into why logic is a necessary part of a liberal education. Logic supplies the mind with the tools that it needs, but does not naturally possess, to acquire knowledge of the highest things, things worth knowing for their own sake. Now, our examination of the dialogue Mino has not only enabled us to make a direct argument for the necessity of logic, it's also provided us with the principles necessary to answer our three objections. The first objection pointed out that logic is not worth knowing for its own sake. Our answer is that the immediate end of logic is to help the mind to come to know things worth knowing in themselves. Without logic, the mind cannot acquire such knowledge, and so without logic, liberal education is doomed to failure. Our answer does not imply that logic is one of the chief parts of a liberal education, only that it is a necessary, although subordinate, part. Our second objection asserted that we come to know logic naturally through our common experience of thinking and learning. Although the, now, although the incidents of the dialogue Mino are perhaps fictional, what they portray is true to life. Mino does not know how to proceed from the known to the unknown and does not know how to formulate a definition. Moreover, he has trouble learning these things despite the pains taken by Socrates to teach him. And Mino is not a newcomer to the intellectual life. He mentions that he studied with Gorgias, one of the most famous intellectuals of his time. So the Mino shows us that we do not learn logic automatically as the objection asserted, but it, that it must be the object of deliberate study. Now the third objection is perhaps the most difficult to answer. It argued that logic is impossible to learn because you could only learn it if you already knew it. You might notice now that this objection is a lot like Mino's debater's argument against looking for the definition of virtue. Now, in answering Mino, we saw that there is a state of mind between complete ignorance of virtue and perfect knowledge of it, a state of imperfect, confused knowledge, which can be the basis for a more perfect knowledge of virtue. Such a state of mind is possible not just for the knowledge of virtue, but also for the knowledge of logic. 
as the objector pointed out, we all have a lot of experience trying to define terms and argue points, and we have even more experience of others doing the same. From that fund of experience, we build up an imperfect understanding of definition and argumentation, and that imperfect understanding is, as St. Albert the Great calls it, a kind of natural logic. And that natural logic, in two ways, is the source for a more perfect grasp of the science of logic. In one way, it's the source of a more perfect knowledge of, of the science of logic because it's the known from which our minds proceed to an understanding of what is yet unknown. Natural logic contains the seeds of the logical discipline that was investigated by Socrates and Plato and that was brought to, and that was brought to completion by Aristotle. But in another way, it's the source of a more perfect grasp of the science of logic insofar as it provides some guidance to the mind as it proceeds from the known to the unknown in logic. Our natural logic provides a method of proceeding to use in our study of logic. And the result of that study is a more perfect grasp of the method of proceeding which can then be used to guide a second investigation into the science of logic. The ultimate result of such a process is a complete grasp of the method of proceeding common to every science, that is, a complete grasp of logic. And so, what the objector thought of as a vicious circle really turns out to be a virtuous circle, a circle in which the mind, by reflecting on its own activity, brings that activity to a greater and greater perfection. Now, a tough-looking panda bear walked into a restaurant and demanded dinner when the waiter handed him the check, the panda pulled out a gun, fired into the ceiling, and began to walk out. The waiter called out, hey, what'd you do that for? The panda threw him a dictionary and said, look it up. So the waiter opened the dictionary and turned to the definition of panda. A large black and white mammal of western China which eats, shoots, and leaves. <laughs> I, I thought I'd wake up some of the tutors there. <laughs> What's going on? He's talking about a panda. How does this relate to logic? Okay, so, so uh, in this lecture, I hope to accomplish two things. First, I wanted to answer the three objections 
which I, which I think can in some way explain the neglect of logic in higher education these days. And second, I wanted to give a positive argument for the necessity of logic in liberal education. I want to bring this lecture to an end by briefly considering the way in which we, the sorry, I want this is what I want to emphasize. I want to give a, I, I want to bring this lecture to an end by briefly considering the way in which we study logic here at Thomas Aquinas College. The way we study logic here is much different from how it is studied almost anywhere else. We study logic here by reading in close detail the logical treatises of Aristotle, the first philosopher to hand down a complete doctrine on logic. What we do not do, but what almost every other school that teaches logic does, is study a textbook on logic, which distil distills and simplifies the difficult text of the philosopher. Now, of course, the most obvious reason that we do this is because the reading of original texts instead of textbooks is one of the principal methods of the educational program here. We are, in an important sense, a great book school. But there is a more particular reason for doing this in the case of logic. To understand this more particular reason, it's helpful to compare the principal parts of liberal education, the speculative sciences, with the mechanical arts. Now, the speculative sciences, such as mathematics, philosophy of nature, and first philosophy, are called speculative not because they consist of guesswork and uncertainty, but rather because their goal is an act of intellectual looking, an act of seeing the truth. That is, these sciences pursue knowledge for its own sake. And so we study them even though our knowledge of them likely has no other use. They are speculative not because they're uncertain or guesswork, but because they're above being practical. The mechanical arts, on the other hand, such as carpentry, architecture, and engineering, are practical because we learn the truth in them in order to bring, a, bring about a, or some result apart from the knowing. The carpenter learns to make a chair. The engineer learns to design a strong bridge. The architect, a beautiful building. And this leads to a second distinction. Because the practical arts produce a tangible result in the physical world, we can use that tangible product to judge whether the art is properly known. For example, if an engineer builds a bridge and the bridge collapses, we can judge that there was some problem with his grasp of engineering. If a doctor treats many sick people and none of them recover, we can conclude that his knowledge of medicine is at fault. But here's the problem. 
The speculative sciences do not make a product. Therefore, we cannot judge their conclusions by examining their practical results. And so how do we judge the conclusions of a speculative science? We can only judge them by comparing them with the first principles of the science and seeing whether the conclusions necessarily follow from those first principles. For example, we do not judge Euclid's proof of the Pythagorean theorem by making and measuring physical triangles. That's not how we do it. Rather, we judge its truth and validity by seeing how every step in the proof follows necessarily from the previous step and how all of the steps follow ultimately from the very first principles of geometry. A practical science can be judged by its results, but a speculative science can be judged only by its principles. And then we ask ourselves the question, what kind of science is logic in this respect? On the one hand, it is not in itself a, a speculative science because its conclusions are not worth knowing for their own sake. It's not worth knowing how to make a definition or a syllogism unless you're going to use that knowledge. But logic is not a practical science either. It does not produce a tangible product in the physical world. All it produces is a method by which the mind can guide itself from the known to the unknown. Because logic is the tool of the speculative sciences, St. Thomas places it among the speculative sciences, but in a subordinate position. What we should notice, however, is this. Like the speculative sciences, the science of logic cannot be judged by the products it produces, but only by the principles from which it proceeds. There's a lot of alliteration in that sentence. Its conclusions about the method for guiding the mind from the known to the unknown, for example, oh, no, sorry. Its, its conclusions about the method for guiding the mind from the, from the known to the unknown, for example, about how to make a definition or a syllogism, can only be judged by whether they follow from the self-evident principles of the science. Now, no logic textbook takes up the study of logic from its principles and proves its conclusions. Logic textbooks instead ask the student to memorize a set of handy rules to remember about reasoning and arguing. For example, they get a, give a set of rules for making syllogisms, but they do not unfold for us how those rules follow from the self-evident principles of logic. They make the mistake of teaching logic as if their doctrine could be easily judged by looking at its tangible results. Now, this method would not be so bad except when we look at the various textbooks more closely, and I have looked at them and there are scores of them, we find that the textbooks do not agree with each other. They give different accounts of which rules are most important and what order they should be presented in, and sometimes they don't even agree about whether this or that rule is true or false. And since they do not resolve their teaching to the principles of the science of logic, 
the student is left powerless to judge whether he can safely reuse the rules that he's been taught. And as a result, most students, even those students who go on to get PhDs in philosophy, end up neglecting the study and use of logic in their own thinking and speech. The textbooks then make the mistake of teaching logic as if it were a practical art. But Aristotle, the father of logic, did not. He studied logic from its first principles, but more importantly for his readers, he taught logic in the same way. Unlike the textbook, he shows us that the rules of logic, that necessary discipline which teaches us the method of going from the known to the unknown, flow from the first self-evident principles of that science. And so we find that it is necessary for a liberal education not just to study logic, but to study it in the way that we do, by reading carefully the logical treatises of Aristotle. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>